0: This week, eternal sunshine of the positive mindset.
1: If we boost positive memory by activating memory-carrying cells, we may be able to uh, restore more normal behavior.
2: And our plant friends may be brainless, but are they intelligent? Once you accept intelligence is the capacity for
3: problem solving, then plants solve an enormous number of problems.
0: Plus, we explore a gaggle of little exoplanets. This is The Nature Podcast for June the 18th, 2015.
2: I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Until the 1990s, astronomers could only fantasise about planets orbiting stars other than our Sun. Now, we know about thousands of these exoplanets. But what can we learn about these distant worlds? Mostly, not much, just their size. In a few cases, though, it's been possible to calculate the size and mass of these exoplanets, giving us clues to their composition. Research led by Daniel John Tuff-Hutter of Pennsylvania State University has been able to make these measurements for the smallest exoplanet yet. The planet is one of a family of three going around a star named Kepler-138, about 200 light-years away. For comparison, our Sun is just eight light-minutes away. But how do we even spot these planets in the first place? Here's Daniel.
4: Planets orbit their stars in a flat plane. And if we're lucky enough to be in that same plane as a planet, as it orbits its star, we can see it pass in front of the star every orbit. And so every time it passes in front of the star, it blocks a little bit of the starlight. And the star's brightness is temporarily reduced. So we can measure how big the planet is because it's blocking a certain fraction of the starlight and what its orbital period is, how long its year is. And so for these planets at Kepler-138, their orbital periods are much shorter than the Earth's orbital period. Uh, They orbit their host star every 10 days, 14 days, and 23 days. There are three planets that are transiting that star.
2: What does this information tell us about these planets? What does it have the potential to tell us about these planets?
4: Once you have its mass and its size, you can measure its density. And you can compare its density to metal or rock or water or gas and start modelling what the planet's made of, its composition. Uh, you can also, if you have its mass and its size, you can measure how strong gravity is on the surface of the planet. And so if it has an atmosphere, you can start trying to understand that.
2: And how did you go about measuring the mass of these planets in this paper?
4: In the Kepler data set of the of their transits, you can measure the time of the transit, the exact moment when they pass in front of the star, very, very precisely, with a precision of a few minutes. But their gravity is affecting each other can change the time of the transit from what you'd expect by several minutes, uh, up to an hour in some cases. And so in this system, all three planets are transiting. So if we study the system as a whole, we get all three planets' masses and all three planet sizes.
2: Have these types of observations been used before to measure the mass of XL planets? Yes, they
4: have. Because Kepler has measured the, these transits so precisely for such a long time, for four years, we have a data set where we can actually use this technique. So this is not the first system where the technique has been applied. It's the system with the smallest masses where this technique has been used.
2: What did you actually learn about these planets once you started to analyse them and trying to investigate their masses?
4: In the case of Kepler-138b, it's the first exoplanet smaller than the Earth to have its mass and radius measured. So it's pushing the boundaries to how small we can go in terms of characterising low-mass planets. The outer two planets are also interesting... They have a similar size, they're just slightly larger than the Earth, but they have a big difference in density. The middle planet is probably a mixture of rock and metal like the Earth, but the outermost planet is less dense than rock, but probably denser than uh, water. So it could be a mixture of water and rock or a mixture of gases and rock. And so we're learning a little bit about the compositions of these planets from their densities. And we're trying to get as many of these systems analyzed as possible so we can compare other planetary systems to our own.
2: What other observations do you think might be possible in the future for exoplanets? At the moment, we can measure their size, we can measure their mass in certain cases. Do you think there are other things that might be possible to measure in the future for exoplanets?
4: So, uh, if transiting exoplanets pass in front of the star and they have an atmosphere, um, in some cases uh, we can observe the starlight passing through their atmosphere and get a spectrum of the planet's atmosphere. And you can learn a lot about a planet if you can measure the composition of its atmosphere, of course. The next uh, big NASA mission to study transiting exoplanets is the test mission due to launch in two years. It is going to look for exoplanets around stars all around the sky. So the Kepler field was a small patch of sky with hundreds of thousands of stars. The test mission will discover thousands of exoplanets uh, including ones that are relatively close to our solar system like Kepler 138.
2: Looking forwards, what do you think are the big challenges for the exoplanet community? What are the things that people would like to find out about exoplanets that currently are difficult or impossible to find out?
4: What we really want to know is how planets form and how our own solar system formed. It turns out that systems like our solar system are not the norm. They're not common. We don't know why. We would like to be able to understand how the enormous variety that is seen in exoplanets came about and uh, learn about how common planets like the Earth are.
2: Thanks, Daniel. To find out more about the three planets orbiting Kepler-138, head over to nature.com forward slash nature.
0: So, Adam, when we've exhausted all the Earth's resources, can we go and live on one of these?
2: No, no. So, none of these planets are actually in the habitable zone of Kepler 138. So, don't think you're going to be escaping there anytime soon.
0: Good news stories all around from the Nature Podcast. Coming up, replaying positive memories lifts depression in mice and in the research highlights, drunk chimps and Cretaceous
2: cell biology. But first, Sharmini Bundell took a field trip to Regent's Park last week with Chris Surridge, the editor of Nature Plants, to ask him about the idea of plant intelligence and whether we're severely underestimating our photosynthetic cousins.
5: So we've we've come come from the nature office out to to Regent's Park so we can sit among the the trees and the grass. Um, Everything looks pretty still apart from the, the rustling of the leaves, but is there more activity going on out here than we can appreciate?
6: There's a lot of activity going on out here. The roots of these trees are growing all the time. Although we can't hear it, we can't see it, the uh, tips of the shoots of these trees are growing all the time. Uh, And often, well, these trees are quite close together. What they're trying to do is to make sure that their leaves are in the sun. Uh, To make sure their leaves are in the sun, they've got to get more leaves out from the shade of all the other trees that are around them. So, in fact, the trees around us are in mortal combat with each other to try and get that little bit more sunlight than the guy next to them. So there's an awful lot of movement going on in these plants around us. It's just that it's happening on scales that we're not good at looking at.
5: Plants are really complex. Do you think that they're intelligent?
6: I think most people, if they don't work on plants uh, and don't tend to think about how plants operate, will think plant intelligence is rubbish. These are people who talk to plants to make them grow better. I mean, they're not intelligent in the way that... Um, that we are. We, we're intelligent. We, we can play games, we can answer mathematical problems, things like that. There's no way that plants can do that. What plants can do is that they, they sense their environment, they react uh, to their environment, they do complicated calculations to predict what's happening in, in the world ahead. And in some respects, that, that, is a, that is a way of defining intelligence. I mean, for example, uh, a plant during the night time uh, has to do a whole lot of uh, chemical reactions, uh, behaviors that are different from what it does in the in the daytime, and because of that, it's very useful for the plant to know when the sun's going to come up in the morning. And in fact, it's an advantage to it to get itself ready uh, in the half hour hour before the sun comes up. Therefore, it's doing complicated calculations every day about how long the night will be, how long it has been since it started the night, what time of year it is, uh, in order for it to determine exactly when the sun's going to come up so it can be ready before that. You could consider that to be a kind of intelligence.
5: Leaving Chris in the park for a moment, I wanted to look a bit more into this idea of plant intelligence. It's a pretty provocative phrase, and one that's been being debated for some years. One proponent of the idea of plant intelligence is Professor Anthony Trawaras, who I spoke to on the phone from Edinburgh. Tony, you've written a book that's being reviewed in Nature This Week, the title of which is Plant Behaviour and Intelligence. Yes. Now, when we say intelligence, we often mean thinking in the way that humans think. But how should we be describing what plants are doing?
3: My reaction is to put it down in terms of Uh, Not so much thinking, because that may be a product of a nervous system, uh, but the business of assessment. Uh, There has to be an assessment about which is going to be the advantageous way, the way which improves the fitness of the individual. I mean, the conclusion i come to is that what we recognise in intelligent behaviour is problem-solving. But once you accept that intelligence is the capacity for problem-solving, then plants solve an enormous number of problems in their situation.
5: In terms of how we judge other organisms, humans seem pretty self-centred then. We've always
3: assumed that being humans and top of the tree, as it were, that we're the only beasts that can be intelligent. And I think that's um, a terribly arrogant attitude. And now we are starting to investigate what goes on in, in the real biological world. We are finding these surprising behaviours
5: everywhere. Thanks, Tony. Back in the park with Chris Surridge, I'm starting to appreciate the apparently inanimate landscape all around us. Are plants more similar to us than we realise?
6: I think that's, that, that's certainly true. They certainly do a lot of interactions. We, we, we tend to think of plants sitting in, in isolation, uh, whereas actually they are interacting with each other uh, all of the time. Uh, these trees all around us are desperately competing with the tree next to them uh, for light, they are also communicating with them about threats that might come along. If a plant gets attacked by a herbivore, you start crushing it. They basically scream to tell everyone around them that that's what's happening. They don't scream uh, with sound. What they do is they release a whole lot of volatile chemicals. So there's a there's a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of things going on that is just happening with senses uh, that we just fail to notice. I think a lot of intelligence research has always been, how close is something to up to me? If it, The closer it is to me, the more intelligent it is. Uh, and um, when we talk about plants having intelligence, what we're really doing is trying to point out that we don't know what intelligence really is, and that you haven't defined intelligence particularly well. That was Sharmini Bundel stopping
2: to enjoy the flowers with Chris Surridge, editor of Nature Plants. And before that, she was on the phone to Anthony O'Wavis. His book is reviewed in Nature this week.
5: The best
0: science news from elsewhere now is the research highlights. Here's Jeff Marsh.
7: Last week, reporter Noah was telling us that chimps had the mental capacity for cooking. Well, it turns out that they enjoy a drink too. Wild chimps living in West Africa have been caught stealing villagers' booze. Villagers in Guinea leave containers under raffia palms to collect their fermented sap. The cheeky local chimps have learned to dip leaves into the container to sponge the sap out. It's the first systematic evidence that non-human primates ingest fermented food and suggest that our ancestors could tolerate ethanol. The find is reported in the Royal Society Open Science Journal. It's Jurassic World week, the film is out and what better time to tell you that a team has just found remarkable soft tissue preserved in dinosaur bones. The bones are around 75 million years old and harbour evidence of connective tissue and maybe even blood cells. It's not the first time that the claim has been made, but in previous studies evidence of proteins has often been poorly preserved. This team used a precise set of tools to extract and prepare samples and then studied them using a very high-res microscope. They found beautifully preserved tissue that looks like protein. The cells could allow studies of dino-metabolism. But cloning? Not likely. Jurassic Park is a cinema-only experience. That paper is in Nature Communications.
0: There's power in positive thinking. OK, it's a cliché, but it's actually come true in a study in mice a team led by Susumu Tonagawa at MIT used a clever technique to replay a mouse's positive memory while it was having a stressful, difficult time. They used a technique called optogenetics to switch on cells that held the pleasurable memory using a blue light. These cells are in a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which we know is heavily involved in memory. The team found that these positive mice reacted better to the stressful situation, whereas other mice showed depressive symptoms. I got Susumu on the line. So you were looking at the effects of almost replaying a positive memory, a pleasurable memory, in mice at times of stress.
1: Yes, you can say the replaying, but we can also say that we are letting mice to remember, recall, the wonderful experience they had before, before they got stressed.
0: And what gave you the idea that a positive memory... Um, or at least the cells associated with a positive memory could help alleviate depression-like symptoms.
1: We have a previous studies in which uh, we demonstrated that uh, when you have a pleasurable memory and also uh, sort of a, a fearful memory uh, successfully, then uh, these two memory compete inside the brain of mice. So we thought. If we take advantage of this competition between positive and negative memory and boost positive memory by activating memory carrying cells, we may be able to uh, restore more normal behavior.
0: Now, when you tested this theory in mice that positive memories could help alleviate depression, you took mice and you had to give them first a positive or a, ne- or a negative experience or a neutral experience. What did those experiences look like for the mice?
1: Uh, for this experiment, we used male mice. And then uh, before they received uh, chronic stress, we let these male mice to play with a, pe- a female mouse for an hour or so and then subject them to a standard procedure for giving them chronic uh, stress.
0: So having had this delightful experience where these male mice get to play with the females, then you put them in a stressful situation and those mice where you reactivate the positive memory using optogenetics, they weren't depressed by it.
1: That's exactly right.
0: And did it last this
1: effect? That's a good question, it will last at least two, two days, that's what we have done. Two days doesn't show, sound like a very long time, but at least it lasts beyond the period where animal is receiving uh, the proper blue light. In order to uh, extend this uh, this finding with the mice, for the possible uh, therapy in a human, there, there are a lot of optimization uh, to be done and also in case of uh, uh, depression patients, there had to be new technology which is uh, less invasive, but uh, there is a possibility that patients which do not respond well to drugs uh, can be uh, treated by this direct manipulation of a very specific area of the brain which is supposed to hold a pleasurable memory.
0: But wouldn't you have to be very specific about that? So, for example, if you were trying to stimulate with an electrode in a human brain, which does sometimes happen for severe depression, uh, what if you stimulated just a little bit off target, you'd stimulate negative memories instead?
1: Yeah, exactly. So that is a problem. Of, uh, the, you know, deep brain stimulation is already being done, for instance, in case of uh, Parkinson's disease. But at the same time, these stimulation procedure is very crude
0: And do any current therapies for depression, either drugs or talk therapy, are they known to stimulate the same circuits as this does?
1: Yes, that's what we we believe. Uh, You know, when you um, give drugs, drugs work everywhere in the brain there is no targeting so uh, the general direction of uh, this new uh, brain research is that uh, in addition to uh, drug treatment, we may be able to target, the spe- find a specific area of the brain which uh, is abnormal and be able to uh, uh, manipulate that specific area.
0: And, and I suppose it gives some support, doesn't it, from a biological stance to the idea that uh, recalling positive memories could help alleviate depression.
1: That's right. So at, at, the minimum, at the minimum, what we have shown is we gave a justification for the psychotherapy, which is being carried out already without really knowing what's going on in the brain. In the future, we would like to be able to do this kind of targeted stimulation of the brain in a more non-invasive or low-invasive method, including some kind of wireless method. So uh, that, uh, you know, this type of research will uh, encourage for the development of the technologies like
0: that that was researcher Susumu Tonagawa at MIT in Boston fun fact about Susumu he actually won a Nobel Prize in 1987 for work on antibodies before switching to study memory you can find the paper at nature.com nature as always where there's also a news and views Finally this week, it's the news, and Lizzie Gibney is here. You know Lizzie, she's our physics nerd, and she's been in touch with Philae.
8: (laughs) I wish I had personally. That would be amazing. We got some great news on Sunday. Um, In fact, Saturday night, quite late, the signal came in at the European Space Agency. Philae is awake on the comet, and Rosetta can very occasionally hear from it at the moment. So um, there were some very excited people on Sunday when this happened if for any reason listeners manage to miss this event,
0: what happened was Philae, this little lander, was shot down onto the surface of a comet, that which, which we call 67P for short. And then, unfortunately, the sun kind of went behind a
8: cloud, <laughs> or out of shot, <laughs> and, um, and it lost its solar power. It had its own batteries that lasted for the first few days. It had a bit of a rough landing. It hit the right spot, but then bounced a couple of times because its harpoons failed to dig in on the surface. Um, and it ended up kind of tilted at the bottom of a cliff um, and in the shade. The hope was was that as the comet crept closer to the sun, the sunlight would be more intense and then there would be enough power generated through the solar panels that it could start up again. Which is exactly what happened. Which is what happened. Yay! Right? (laughs) Everything's great now, isn't it? Yes, I know. Everything is great for Philae in the sense that It is warmer than they thought it would be, it has more power than they thought it would have, and it can, with that power, it can start science activities. The issue is, at the moment, the communication between Philae and Rosetta isn't great. Rather than, back in November, they had about four hours to talk to each other. The communications they've had so far have been a matter of a few minutes, and some of them were interrupted. So in that circumstance, it's very hard to actually start doing science because you need to send it a lot of commands. So what they're doing is um, they've had a little chat with the people who run the orbiter and they've decided that they're going to switch the trajectory of Rosetta so that they can hopefully align the antenna of the two a little bit better. And in that way, they should be able to get a really stable communications link through which then they will be able to do all the great science. But I think that's happening, in fact, on Wednesday when this comes out. Um, So by the end of the week we should hopefully be starting to have some real comet science from the little lander that could. And what is the promise? I mean, what kind of science would people like it to be able to do? So it's going to start off relatively slowly doing the uh, less energy intensive activities so uh, looking at the magnetic field and the electric field and the comet some of the other activities which are the really exciting things that it could do like using the drill to get some samples so we can study not just the bits of dust and gas that are sublimated into the, the coma the atmosphere around the comet but we can actually look at the materials that don't get um, sublimated then that might be really exciting science because that might be amino acids, the kinds of things that we hope to find that could actually maybe even indicate that some of the building blocks of life were brought to planets like our own on comets. No pressure, Philae. Keep talking. <laughs> None at all. And nice to have you
0: back, Philae. I don't know why I'm talking to you because uh, there's very little communication and very little power. Well, it does tweet.
8: So, uh, oh, but... that's marvellous.
0: <laughs> we'll look out for that. We're going to move on to something that's only, only marginally less cool and less hip than the Philae lander on a comet. And these are 2D materials, so graphene, of course, being the buzzword Mm. for these things.
8: Everybody's heard of graphene. There are are not enough superlatives in the world to describe graphene. But whilst everyone has heard of graphene, especially because there was that nice Nobel Prize in 2010, um, what maybe fewer people will know about is that being able to isolate graphene spurred a huge number of other 2D materials to be explored. And the thing is with graphene is, as amazing as it is, One thing it doesn't have is something called a band gap, which basically just means in a material that has a band gap, you can give it a bit of energy and it will kick an electron up into the conduction band. And by doing that, you have the ability to switch its conducting on and off. That's what silicon does. That's what you need for it to be used in transistors in the kind of basics of any electronic circuit. Why some of these materials are very exciting is because they are semiconductors. So we might be able to have the hope is we might be able to have something like silicon, but in just a two D layer. Uh, the hope is with these systems they'll they'll be less power hungry and they'd be a lot smaller. Um, so, but but there's also. The great thing about these two D materials, really, is that actually, when they're in their single layer form versus any kind of bulk form, their properties change entirely. So actually, um, there's some really cool new uses that potentially are opening up, like spintronics and all kinds of things. These are just basically other ways of kind of conveying exactly. So at the moment, we uh, an electronic circuit um, is about moving charges around, and that's how we we communicate, we, uh, how we carry encode the information. What you'd be doing in spintronics is, is using the spin of an electron, which is either up or down. It's like a little internal bar magnet. It's all kind of very speculative, but it's also something that's really exciting people at the moment. Is this too speculative? Well, we have fads like this that come around every few years. What I think, I would say that I think something will come of it. And in fact, we quote someone in the piece saying, um, at the moment, the interest is all in this high end digital electronics. Um, But maybe it's going to be Exactly like with with a laser or something, you know, we we come up with this new technology, and and actually, you don't end up using it for any kind of the the reasons you think you will. Um, so it might be that we'll end up with two D materials in all other kinds of places, but not for electronics. Um, but but I think they will they'll they'll find a place. I think.
0: All right, well thank you Lizzie for coming in Um, and won't you just tell listeners about one other story that
8: we haven't got time to talk about in depth but is a little bit mind-blowing, they can find it on the website This was really fun, um, my working title for this piece has been Schrodinger's Cat in Space I will leave it there I think
0: Okay, good teaser, I like it uh, nature.com slash news is the place to find out about Cats in Space and also uh, all the other stuff we've been talking about. And Landers in Space Landers in Space, 2D materials firmly on the ground in labs. Thanks Lizzie
2: Next week, the icy wilderness teeming with life. What lives in Antarctica, and how? I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith.